Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. What's going on, What's the Scuttlebutt podcast? As you heard Carrie say, I'm your host, Don Abernathy, but I'm not the only host. You know, I'm getting a sneaking suspicion that some of you guys haven't tuned in in a while because uh, Jeff has been posting on uh, the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast Facebook page. And some of our listeners think that it's me finding some of these cool things out in Texas. And so I think what Jeff and I will do from this point, dash Jeff. And whenever I post something, I'll push dash Don so you guys know who you're talking to when we're making posts. Because clearly some of you guys are hanging out on the Facebook page but haven't tuned in in a while. So with all that being said, now that I'm done chastising the audience, Jeff, what's going on in Texas, (laughs) fella? Well, you know, it's about 100 million degrees here like normal. Yeah. Uh, But... Yeah, so uh, does that give me free reign to just put something completely ridiculous on our Facebook page? And I'll just put Dash Don. Sure. If you want to do the Facebook, <laughs> co- you know, uh, incognito post, then I'll I'll put like pictures of me in like bikini underwear where you can't see my head, and I'll just put Jeff Texas. I'll maybe get some like Texas Lone Star like speedos and pretend like I'm you. Maybe wear some cowboy boots. <laughs> if you want to go That's that awesome. route. Uh, so how you been, man? It's been a while. It's been crazy. You know, uh, I do a lot of other volunteering, um, you know, World War II related. Um, I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast, but you know, I'm a pretty recent uh, CAF colonel. Uh, and I've taken over uh, as the chairman of the uh, docent program at the uh, Highland Lake Squadron here in Burnett, the little CAF um, squadron here. And they also have an air museum. So I've taken over the education programs for that. What and, city uh, is that in? Did you say Bernie? In Burnin, right where I live. Burnin, okay. Is that close to Bernie, or is that the same place? Uh, no, Bernie is down by San Antonio. That's close to Fredericksburg. I'm up in Burnet, B-U-R-N-E-T. I got you. Um, with, yeah. the, with the phone so. connection, they both sound very similar. The reason I bring up Bernie is everybody who knows anything about Bernie is because that's the home of Demolition Ranch. And Actually, it's funny. When I came out to... Uh, out to Texas last year on my way in between San Antonio and Fredericksburg. I actually stopped at the original location of uh, Bunker Branding, but he has since moved it. But, yeah, so Texas is hot. Yeah. Um, it's been getting on the low 100s here in Florida, too. Well, then you feel the pain. Man. Yeah. <laughs> August sucks. Yeah, it's tough. So before the show, um, I'm trying to get my daughter back into running because, you know, last year she ran a 5K on Thanksgiving and then – you know, things have slowed down, and then with COVID, the kids aren't moving as much as they have been. And so we went out running right. last night, and she struggled with it a little bit. Good news is tonight we cut three minutes off her mile from last night. And so I did, wow. a, I did a mile and three quarters with her, and I came back, and I got my uh, seven-month-old Boston Terrier. And we went for, we started <laughs> going for a walk. She was sniffing. I was like, you want to run? She started running. My dog just did her very first mile. She did a 13, 23-minute mile, but that includes the beginning when we were sniffing and walking. So my, my little Boston Terrier just did her first mile. And, and so I'm, I am full of energy and angst and uh, just full of adrenaline because I just did, you know, it was three miles before the show. But it's so fun to see her run because she just loves it because puppies are just so full of energy. And I feel bad because when we got her, we had another dog who has since passed away because he was old. And so, and the cats don't want nothing to do with her. So she's constantly running and chasing herself. And so I thought maybe if I start taking her for a run once or twice a week, it'll help burn off all that excess energy and make her a happier dog and keep her from getting fat like my old one. (laughs) Right. Well, you mentioned August sucks, but, uh, you know, from, 
an anniversary perspective, mm-hmm. a World War II perspective, uh, kind of the whole reason we want to do this podcast, you know, this time of the year or, or for this episode, man, it is rich. It is robust with anniversaries from both the beginning and, of course, the end of the war. Yeah, we just missed um, the anniversary for the landing on Guadalcanal, which was August 7th. Right, right. Uh, and that's what I was hoping. I mean, I was trying to put some notes together for, for this episode tonight. I'm hoping that's kind of the main the main topic. But, uh, you know, like 10 minutes into our podcast, like every other one, we just throw the notes away and it goes down the rabbit hole. <laughs> well, but, uh, well, the good news is, is especially the PTO, that's a topic that you and I are both, both very versed in. And I find a lot of times when you make notes and you try to read the notes verbatim, especially with me, I'm not great at reading aloud. Um, it kind of slows things down to get staggered. Whereas if we freeform and go off of our memories, yes, yeah, some of the stats and dates may get a little skewed because we're not reading it from notes in front of us, but it always turns out pretty good. I think. Oh yeah, I think so. Um, have you real quick before we get into anything? Uh, I didn't see, uh, did we have any replies from, uh, what we asked our listeners last episode? No, um, the mailbag is empty. There's no email for us this week. No one has sent us any emails over at info at WTSP world war com and, or mail call at WTSP world war com. But, um, if that's the way you guys want to communicate with us, please do so. Um, send us information and, um, questions that way. Maybe I'll put up our text line, uh, so people can send us text messages and we can get information that way. And, um, yeah, I mean, we really want to open things up and maybe what we can do in the future is once we get a line of communication up between you and I, other than using the phone system, um, like when we start zooming or using a third party, then we can open up the phone lines we're using now. So maybe we can start taking calls during the show and really get the audience into it and give it more of a, a radio show format as well. That would be awesome. Yeah. Before we get too in depth in it, but this is on topic. Um, mail call for me this week. Um, you ever order things that you forget your order because they take a long time to show up? <laughs> I think all of us are dealing with that now. <laughs> Thanks to T- uh, Timothy Cohen from the Louisiana Depot. Um, about four or five months ago, he put up on the Facebook page that we use for the um, Fort Morgan, Alabama reenactments that are always PTO based. And he said he'd got a hold of green and brown, both P-42 material. And much like the Marines did um, after Guadalcanal and when they were in New Zealand and Australia, um, and they had some rest and rehabilitation, some of them would take their old P-42s and take them down to, um, well, they also do with the P-41s as well, but they take them down to local seamstresses and, and that and have new piss cutters made because... I think what the only it, technically the only real issued from the core and the quartermaster were the um, khaki piss cutters and the wool ones, correct? Right, as far as I know, yeah. But you see pictures of guys wearing the um, sage green ones and then the camouflage ones. That's because they would take old uniforms and they would commission seamstresses and, and um, tailors to make them. And so he uh, oh. he he made me. I got a, both the camo green. It's camo green on the outside and then brown on the inside, even though it's not reversible. So I got one of each, and these things are awesome. So now I do have uh, an original khaki, um, a sage green from the P41s, and now a camo green and camo brown P42 piss cutters. Now I just got to get me an, a wool one, and we will be good to go. 
Um, I've had people post when I posted photos on the Facebook page, hey, where can I get some? I know this was kind of a made-order dry run for him, but I think the interest and the turnout was pretty pretty darn good. And I'll be honest with you. Um, yes, he made these, but these are if I put if I were to stamp a logo on it from like any of the other quote unquote mainstream reproduction uniform manufacturers, you wouldn't know the difference. This isn't like hands, this thing, these are put together well. There's no like loose mm. fabric hanging off. There's no split seams. He even has a stamp for the uh, Louisiana Depot inside and has, I mean, these things are top flight. They look just as good quality, if not better than some of the uh, ones you see out there on the internet. So I will reach out to him and have him notify me if and when he's going to do another run. And um, I will put up the link for those of you who may be interested in ordering some. Yeah, that's a good idea. So I was walking through Publix, which is our local grocery store tonight, and I saw the History Channel has put out a new um, photo, kind of like a Time Life magazine type thing. It's World War II VJ Day, how we won the war 75 years later, and it's supposed to be the final campaign, minute by minute. Now, how it could be minute by minute when a thing is only 90 pages long, I don't know. Um, I just got it an hour ago, so I haven't read it, but flipping through it, it's got some some photos that I haven't seen before. Um, and it looks like it does cover in great detail a lot of it. So it's nice to see that, uh, kind of like Jeff was saying earlier, now that we have all these anniversaries coming up, and it's nice to see that more publications are coming out about the PTO and uh, helping to remember the the gentlemen and the women and all of the um, forces who fought down there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, this is so this is such a juicy time of year for for World War II, both beginning and end, um, and and even into, of course, into September. And like I ran uh, past you a few weeks ago. Um, hopefully, maybe next episode we do kind of pre-American involvement World War II and, and talk about um, what the British did to hold off the Germans uh, in 1940 in the Battle of Britain. Absolutely. And while running. Yeah. Have you seen, because, well, you're from Texas and you're uh, very intimate with Fredericksburg, have you seen the movie Midway? Uh, I'll try to answer that short form. Because <laughs> you better believe I saw that movie, I don't know how many times in theaters when it came out. Took my dad, took my son, took a bunch of our volunteers, uh, you know, from, from my day job. Uh, and since then, I've become uh, pretty good friends with the advisor from that film, Harlan Glenn. Nice. Uh, him and I exchanged info. Yeah, quite a bit. Um, he is, he is just a treasure trove of information. If you, if you check him out on IMDB and some of the other things that he's done, um, and actually working on getting some stuff donated, uh, to Fredericksburg that, um, was used in the movie, some uniforms. And he, he really gave me some really cool backstory of, um, uh, Woody Harrelson's uniform, uh, portraying Nimitz and, and some things like that. So yeah, I could go on and on about that movie well maybe so, yeah, go ahead try to reach out and see if he's interested in coming on the show but uh one of the things i try to do is not get caught up in all of the pre-release hoopla and um promotions i don't whenever i see a movie coming out i don't go track it down on the internet and find all the spoilers and stuff because much like roller coasters and cars and everything else i find that if you buy into the pre-hype you're more likely to be let down whereas if you go into it blind just know okay here's a movie about midway then your expectations are low and you're more likely to be blown away. And that's kind of what I did with Midway. I knew it was coming out. I knew I wanted to see it, but I'd just been way too busy. And, and I it was on HBO the other day and I watched it. And 
it's a fantastic movie. Um, for those of you guys who haven't seen it, it's called Midway because Midway is the apex of the movie. But correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, they did what Pearl Harbor tried to do, minus the crappy love scenes. They covered a lot of ground, and it started off pre-war. It went to Pearl Harbor. They covered the Battle of Coral Sea. They talked about the um, – when they were trying to figure out – the intelligence officers knew that Japan was going to make a move, but there was two targets and they weren't exactly sure which one of the two targets this move was going to be made upon. And so the intelligence said, Hey, and I'm sure if you're listening to this, a lot of you know this, if not, Hey, we're here to educate you. How they, how they figured out the Japanese plan is they told Midway to release an unencrypted message talking about how their water puration system or their water facilities are, are down and they have no fresh water. And so the Japanese intercept this code they encrypt it. They relay it to all their people. We intercepted it, and we hear blah, 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 target has no water. Boom. We know it's midway, so we redirected our uh, forces up there. So they covered that. They briefly covered the Doolittle Raids. I mean, this movie encompasses a lot of material, and they did a fantastic job. They introduce you, to lack of better term, characters, but obviously real people who really existed who participated and had a lot to do in these campaigns that a lot of people weren't familiar with. Um, one of my favorite things to do, and I know you do this too, is whenever watching TV show or a movie like this, is once it's done, I'm, I'm on the internet looking up people. Who's this guy? I want to see what he looks like in real life. I want to see what he did. And this movie presents you with a lot of people to investigate. Absolutely. And I'll say I, I went into it like you did, kind of blind, I guess, as you could say. Um, I... You know, keep my expectations at bay because it's a movie. You know, I, I don't try to pick things apart. You know, I just kind of, um, I don't know, maybe I'm different than a lot of other folks. Um, it's for entertainment. Yeah. And if they get half, if they get half of it right, and if they make it to where I can take my 14 year old son because it's not laced with everything else that they put in movies today that has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I can take my 14 year old son and he gets interested and then like you did, like you go home and you do more research, then to me it was successful. Um, and you're right. That's exactly what that movie did. And I, I cringe every time I hear people say, Oh, I like the original one better though. This was not a remake of the 1976 Midway movie. This was not a remake. This was a whole nother take. Like you said, they cover pre-Pearl Harbor, the Pearl Harbor attack, uh, the attack on the Marshalls in February of 42. That's so grossly overlooked. Do little raid. And then you're right. It climaxes at Midway. And I'll be honest. I told Harlan Glennis, I said, honest, I said, man, I know you weren't in charge of this, but what they really should have titled this movie was Pacific Payback. Yeah. Because it, it just showed so much. I lo- in a short amount of time. I love the fact that they even included when the director of the Signal Corps was down there on the atoll with his cameraman when the invasion happened. Because that's all real. You can go on YouTube right now and look for the 1943 version called Midway, and you'll see the real footage of when they were down there filming, when they were getting strafed. And the fact that they even included that in the movie I thought was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's John Ford long before he became known for making all those John Wayne movies. <laughs> it was just Yeah, no, it was it was so well done. I mean, even the showing that they showed an inaccurate number of B twenty sixes, but the fact that they included the B twenty sixes that were outfitted actually with torpedoes, not 
not the aerial bombs, but just, just the attempt at, at showing some of those little-known things um, were just, it really blew me away. And it's the movie I've been waiting for for a long, I mean, since I've, since I watched Saving Private Ryan in theaters, this is the midway, this is the movie I've been wanting to see. I wanted to feel like I was in a Dauntless in a 75-degree dive coming down at an aircraft carrier, you know, <laughs> like, and they put you, they put you right there. And so, you- yeah, it was really well done. And you know one of the classiest things I think that they did writing that movie and directing it is the way they portrayed the Japanese. When you're watching that movie, you're not looking at the Japanese. They don't portray portray the Japanese as these monsters, as these horrible people, which some people, you know, you can say that some of the things they did were horrible. But in most, and usually in movies, they portrayed the enemy as a mystical monster. They actually switched to the Japanese side, and you kind of get the feeling of what it was like to be on their vessels. And, you know, they showed their commanders putting out orders and, you know, and how they were interacting and the way that they operated. And so they really brought the human side to the Japanese as well, so that you understood these were guys who were fighting for their country, whether or not they agreed with the policies because of what their government was making them do. And so they really humanized the quote unquote enemy in that movie, instead of making them some mystical monster, like a lot of movies do. Yeah. Yeah. And they certainly weren't the bumbling idiots either that they're, you know, that the enemy sometimes portrayed it as well. Now it was, yeah, it was a very unbiased equal take. I thought from both sides and just kind of told a story just to show the struggle and showed what, what we were up against in those early months, um, you know, following the Pearl Harbor attack. And that's um, really hard to do in today's Hollywood, because if you go back and look at, I don't, it don't even have to be World War II movies, but just movies in general. Back in the day, the audience had a longer attention span. You could do a longer burn in a movie. You could do a movie where the first 45 minutes, there's no action. Nowadays, you've right. got to cut to it. And so for, and yeah, people order, don't like character development. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They want, they want the action. <laughs> so I well, think for this episode, we both can strongly recommend if you haven't, or if you've only seen it once, it's on demand, it's all over the place, go out and check out Midway. And then when you're done watching Midway, go out on Amazon prime and check out Jeff making his on-screen premiere in the walking point. <laughs> I was uh I actually had this in my notes too. I really wanted to to mention uh very very excited cuz Walking Point we talked about in our first episode, and, you know, that's really the genesis of, of our friendship and and so on and so forth, but to be selected for the Hollywood um competition film uh film competition in LA that is huge, man. That is really huge for for an independent film, you know, um that just came together just right in front of our eyes, everything just kind of fell into place. And, and, and maybe the director and the producer may be like, well, it wasn't that easy, <laughs> yeah. you know, but um, from my perspective as the advisor for the film, everything just kind of started falling in place for us. And uh, yeah, that's a big deal. And I can't really, I can't divulge too much information, but I will say that uh, it's, it's leading to another project for me and, and a project that I'm working with another cast member from walking point. So very, very excited about the opportunity I'm going to have there. Hopefully in the next year or so we'll, we'll be able to kind of go public with, uh, and, but, uh, so just kind of keep down the back burner. Um, so congratulations yeah. to RJ Nevins, Chelsea Nevins and, uh, Lou Wagner. So, I mean, that the whole project is it's, you know, and, and right now with COVID when you work, 
I mean, that movie was in pre-production for years, uh, getting things in place, getting the casting done, locations, and then to put it out, get it done, and then right when the film circuits, the independent film circuits that these people heavily rely on to get distribution, to maybe get a longer version, all these things happen when COVID comes. It really, you know, it really knocks the wind out of a lot of sales, but luckily... Um, with technology and the way things work, a lot of stuff's going virtual, and they're still getting seen, and they're still getting the love, and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. We thank all the supporters for Walking Point out there, and everybody that helped make it, and everybody that's helping share everything on through social media, and and everybody that's just helping put it together uh, in this climate. Yeah, it's certainly uh, very much appreciated from everybody at the Walking Point team for sure, but. Man, we should probably get to the topic, huh? Yes, but before we get to the topic, this episode of the <laughs> What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all of Southwest Florida since 2004 and all around the country and further since 2010. That's right. Even if you're not in Southwest Florida and you're having computer problems, you need online backup, antivirus help, two-form authentication for remote logins, or you need a secure way to log into your network without using the default Windows remote desktop, Give At Computers a phone call at 239-283-1120. And even if you're not in Southwest Florida, they can log into your computer and help you with your issues. And they can help you with online backups to protect all of your data for $0.07 cents a gig per month. So give them a call at 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. And back to the task at hand. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, um, like I said, we, we mentioned before, you know, 7 August. Uh, the uh, kind of the very first D-Day of many D-Days in the Pacific. Um, and, you know, just talking to somebody earlier today who was talking about how, you know, when you go through, you know, universities today and you get your degree in, in, in anything, um, just taking a basic course in history, U.S. history, um, the Pacific theater, and you know this from your reenacting, I'm sure, and a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, struggle with the same thing. Uh, the Pacific really gets glossed over. The, Europe uh, really seems to take, you know, the, the the front seat on a lot of things. And it's and I'm not, you know, trying to speak that I'm biased towards the Pacific theater because trust me, like I said, I mean, I grew up. I mean, our first um, our first episode together was about the Memphis Bell, mm-hmm. dude. I mean, that's you know, now you speak my lingy, <laughs> uh, but. Yeah, the Pacific really does get glossed over. And uh, I grew up in a little town up in New Jersey, uh, a block and a half away from this old Marine who served on Guadalcanal. And let me tell you, when I was 11, 12 years old, somewhere in there, middle school, walking to the middle school, back, you know, back and forth each day, walking past his house, who was always out there. You know, the lawn was always immaculate, you know, typical Marine, chewing on a cigar kind of guy. Um, when I wanted to ask him about Guadalcanal, he just opened up because it was like nobody ever asked him about Guadalcanal. And it became such a tight uh, – oh, sorry about my – that's my clock in the background there. Nah, no worries. <laughs> um, you know, it became such a tight relationship. He almost became like a grandfather to me. And before I moved down here to Texas, and the last time I saw him, uh, he gave me his wool uh, Marine piss cutter. Uh, he gave me his Marine Corps ring. 
and he gave me the first Raider Battalion patch wow. that he wore. And he told me, he said, Jeff, he said, you could ask my wife or kids what I did in World War II. He said, uh, they would say I was a Marine. He said, you know where my best friend was killed. And so that started everything for me in understanding the importance of uh, Operation Watchtower and what that meant. And, um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of stuff prepared. Uh, you know, what you and I are just going to feed off of each other. But one thing I wanted to point out to our listeners that, you know, I always like to try to find that little niche, like, oh, man, I never knew that. <laughs> um, so even for our listeners who know about Wild Canal and, you know, they've probably seen the Pacific miniseries and think there's that's that's everything that there is to know. Maybe they didn't know this because I didn't as of a few days ago. Um, we all know that Rabal was the you know target Rabal, Fortress Rabal. That was the stronghold. Um, and as the Japanese were advancing towards the south and threatening the shipping lanes between us and Australia, something had to be done. And this is what I didn't realize that the army's plan, their conception for the first offensive was to just straight go at Rabal. Just go right into mm-hmm. the gut of that fortress. And the Navy's plan was a little bit different. They felt that we needed to take Tulagi, then jump off to Rabal. So as MacArthur and Gormley, Admiral Gormley start when 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 the command starts taking shape of who's going to have what, what the resources are, and of course, you know, we're still at a Europe first strategy. Uh, a lot of aircraft going over there. So, um, you know, the aircraft carriers, there's only so many in the Pacific at this time. So we know that the runways are going to be important. You know, the, the, these islands, and this is going to become the heart and soul of Admiral Nimitz's island hopping campaign because we needed unsinkable aircraft carriers. And that was those little coral atolls that could or already had uh, housed a runway. Um, so McGargan Gormley suggested that we go after the New Hebrides and the Santa Cruz Islands, as opposed to all the way down in the Solomons. And of course that was rejected by Joint Chiefs. So finally, finally, the agreement came to basically the outer edges of the Japanese empire, the Southern tip at, at Guadalcanal. And I didn't realize that because in, in reading about what the initial plans you know, were supposed to be, it was because um, we knew we had to stop them and we had to stop them right now. And we didn't quite understand the risk uh, or the margin or how small the margin of error was going to be uh, to try to knock them off at the brunt. You know, we're going to try to like almost kind of do this uh, flanking move at the very start of the war, instead of where they're heading off down south, we're not going to hit there. We're going to go in at the heart, you know, attack the dragon right there at the heart. And and I just found that kind of interesting because look at what the struggle was for Guadalcanal, August through what January, February of yeah. '43. I mean, uh, had we had that plan to go directly after Revolve and approved by Joint Chiefs, uh, catastrophe. <laughs> absolute catastrophe i think is what would have ensued so i just found that very interesting um what, what is uh what is your take on that well yeah i mean the island hopping camp the that's what they ended up calling it the island hopping version of the campaign there was definitely a lot of um back and forth and argument on settling on that and um 
it, it makes sense um, because like the old saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you're going to try to go straight to, to Rabul, uh, one, you're leaving, you know, you're, you're sending everything to one location, hoping that it works. And not only that, but you have all this land behind you that basically could allow them to attack you from your rear. Whereas, you know, by doing the island hopping, you can slowly capture different atolls and build up reinforcements as you advanced. And so, I don't know, it just seems like doing it that way, there's less likely a chance of overall failure. Yes, you're going to have failures and here and there. You may not take one island as quickly as you want, but at least you already have three more behind you that you've already taken. Whereas if you bypass all that, try to put all your infrastructure, all your logistics, all your men into one project and it fails, you know, it's going to just make the whole campaign take that much longer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you're, when you logistically speaking, I mean, when you're talking about our resources at the time, <laughs> you know, even once we, we initially took Guadalcanal or at least secured the, what became Henderson Field, uh, you know, named after uh, Lo- uh, Lofton Henderson uh, from the Battle of Midway, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, P-39s, <laughs> you know, F-4Fs, um, aircraft that was was not up to par with what the Japanese had um, coming at us at the time at all. I mean, not even close. Well, look at our look at our Marines. Keep in mind, the M1 Garand <laughs> hasn't been issued. Um, a lot of the newer materials haven't been issued. Um, that landing was one of the first real battle landings that we did from Higgins boats. Luckily, there was no um, defense on the on the landing, so that went smoothly. That could have been a complete nightmare. But our guys were using 1903 Springfields from World War One. They had, uh, you know, very few, you know, our, our machine guns were still water cooled. So not only were you carrying the tripod, carrying the gun, uh, your ammo carriers had to carry ammo as well as water cans. And when that ran out, everybody resorted to urinating in the cans because they got to keep these barrels cold. And so logistically, and that's, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's part of the reason why the Marine Corps went first is because at that point in time, because of um, how things ended up after World War I and how the public kind of had lost their taste for war, um, is not really the phrase I'm looking for, but basically the Army itself was at an all-time low. They had low numbers at that point. They didn't have the equipment. Uh, the troops that they did have, a lot of them were down in, you know, uh, the Philippines and they got invaded. And so the Marines were sent, they were fighting with obsolete weapons. Um, thank God they're proficient and they love the 1903 Springfields, but you know, we weren't exactly going in at the top of our game equipment wise. And then of course, when we did land and things got rough outside, we lost a George S. Elliott with all the equipment, all the food, all the extra ammunition. And so when the, and then, then when the Navy pulled out, the Marines were left there to defend for themselves with very little water, almost no food. All their equipment was because if you guys don't know when they do the landings, they don't just take all their belongings and go. They basically take what they need for that mission, what they expect to be two or three days. All the stuff from their platoon is left on a boat with one person who's there to watch it until they bring it ashore. All that was lost when the George S. Elliott was sunk. And so those guys were out there, the Navy pulled out. They had no idea when they're getting reinforcements. They had to be very um, aware of their ammo, their weapon, their ammo expenditure, and their 
in a god awful place. You got al- crocodiles, alligators, all the bugs and insects, let alone the Japanese. And so it was a very, very rough place to be, especially for a group of 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 year old men who this is their real first taste of combat. It's just all together yeah, rough. It, it wasn't looking good. It wasn't looking good early on. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not like you invade the island with everything, you know, but the kitchen sink. Everything is done in in organized phases. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You go in there with what's on your back, um, expecting to take, you know, whatever the initiatives were and and get to these phase lines and these strong points and set up your CPs to start um, your, your supply line. And when that gets cut off, um, yeah, perilous times for the Marines, but also remembering too, that the Japanese defenders were honestly under the exact same conditions or sometimes worse. Um, yes, absolutely. once we could cut off their resupply, uh, it was starving Marines fighting starving Japanese. And what kind of was a huge detriment to the Japanese soldier because of their life, but also a huge detriment to the Marines. You're a Marine, you're in this environment. And you're facing an enemy who's, I don't know if it's fair to say this, but I'm going to say it anyhow, whose upper echelon and whose leaders have a very um, low consideration for quality of life or meaning of life. And so you have these enemies who just send their guys in bonsai charges in the middle of the night, knowing that most of them are going to get mowed down. And they just do it wave after wave because they're thinking, well, we'll just, we'll beat them with numbers. We don't care how many men we lose. We'll right. just overrun them with numbers. And so you're there. You don't have any reinforcements. You're not sure when the next group of guys are coming in. You have only so much ammo, and you have waves of humans running at you in the middle of the night. Uh, you got what the washing, washing machine trolley overnight, just keeping you <laughs> awake, dropping bombs. Not Hopefully they hit somebody, but their the core goal was just to, as uh, they say, uh, Robert Leckie said, their goal was to simply steal your sleep, to keep you awake, keep you exhausted, so that when they did their counterattacks in the daytime, you're completely just, you're fighting on fumes, essentially. You're fighting on coffee and cigarettes because they keep you awake all night with the bombing raids and the constant flying over. And so it was just a hard, hard way to fight. Yeah, absolutely. And the Solomons down there is as beautiful as they must have been. Um, really was no man's land. Because like you said, the malaria, just all those jungle diseases. Um, gosh, it is. I just can't even imagine that environment. Because the environment, you know, every soldier Marine is, is trained to ignore those elements. Um, I don't know how those could be ignored. Yeah. <laughs> That really was just the, the 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 bottom of the barrel wasteland of disease and just the the, the weather. Ah, man, that's just yeah. So really, always you know, got to keep these keep these guys in mind going forward. You know, it's just such a little footnote of history it doesn't exist for some people. They have never even come across the word Guadalcanal in reading, <laughs> but. You know, thanks to to you and our listeners to try to keep some of this stuff going because, guys, if you, if our listeners after this episode, if they just Google Battle of Guadalcanal, um, you know, read about it. Just and, and I know one thing 
guaranteed I know one thing they're going to come across. Medal of Honor recipient, one of my favorite World War II veterans, Sergeant John Bassalon. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, gr- growing up from, you know, being from New Jersey, he grew up about an hour or so north of me. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful statue up there in Raritan, New Jersey. Um, if anybody ends up in that area, it is the neatest little town. It is like that quintessential, you know, that just Victorian era homes. Uh, the Raritan River runs right, right through the middle of town. Uh, little cobblestone wooden bridges that cover the river. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And going up there to see that statue um, actually took uh, my jarhead brother. Uh, I got the best. I got the best big brother in the world, and he's a former marine. And uh, hopefully, he'll be listening to this. <laughs> um, but for for him and I to go see that together, you know, to see that Barcelona statue, to understand what it meant, and to really to see how people have never forgotten. He is still. Like, he is still the talk of the town. You yeah. know, the Bassalon family is still there, and it's on this little uh, – it's almost like a jug handle. And I know people in Texas or maybe Florida may not understand jug handles. Some people have traffic circles. Uh, Texas, we just have turn lanes. But in Jersey, you don't have a turn lane. You have a jug handle where if you need to go left, you take a road to the right that hooks around and then <laughs> – Protected by a, uh, that was my, that was my daughter. Sorry about that, guys. That's all right. <laughs> We're broadcasting from home. <laughs> uh, anyway, so this jug handle will then safely take you over, you know, across the highway uh, at a light change. So it's just the way they do things up there. So right at this little jug handle, and the jug handles are always typically one way, uh, is is just this enormous statue of Barcelona and his Medal of Honor and, and what. Uh, you know, of course, not the ribbon, but what the citation reads is, is written there in stone. And, of course, there's Navy Cross from Iwo Jima. But just being there for a few minutes and taking pictures, everybody coming through that little jug handle at, at that little intersection, they're rolling their window down. Oh, that's our man. That's our boy, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> Honking their horns. And, and it's just this little grass patch that's just well manicured. And there's always flowers there. There's always something there. And it's just the heart of America. And just to see what somebody did uh, so long ago still live on. Um, and I know, I have a feeling, if Barcelona had survived the war, um, he would have had a hard time talking about what he did. Sure. I think he would have emphasized, like most Melvon recipients do today, let me tell you about the guys that didn't get to come home. Because that's really what it's all about. You know, we, we all have read the stories, or hopefully we've read the story of what Barcelona did on, on uh, it, it was in October, right? The night of the 12th and 13th, I think, in October of 42 on the island. And what he did with that machine gun platoon, uh, just knocking out an entire Japanese company. Um, but I think he really would have wanted to emphasize all the boys that didn't leave Guadalcanal. Yeah. You know? That's just my that's just my feeling in my gut. Well, and they, back to the HBO series, The Pacific, they kind of portrayed that a little bit when they showed how tormented he was when they made him go out and do the um, war bond drive tour. He had no interest in doing that. He was ordered to do it. Right. He, one thing he was good at was following orders and being a, and being a Marine through and through. So he went on the war bond drive tour. He hated every minute of it. And he basically said, Hey, I want to go back. I send me back. Let me train new recruits. 
I, you know, this is not what I'm here for. And they allowed him to go back, and he trained troops. And then, sadly, we all know what happened to him on uh, Okinawa. No, Iwo Jima. I'm sorry. Uh, Iwo. Yeah, I misspoke Iwo Jima. Yeah. And kind of back to yeah, what we Yeah, that dude was a fighter, man. Yeah. And the other thing... <laughs> he really was. He was a fighter. And the other thing I want to give props to the, the creators of the Pacific for, and we talked about the malaria stuff, is they really got into, as best as they could without losing the interest of the audience, of how hard just the daily existence was with the malaria and the mud and, you know, just surviving, let alone, you know, let's say for just put it this way. If it wasn't a war, let's say they were marooned from a, a, a plane crash or a ship sinking, just daily survival on that Island was hard enough without the fact that you had people on the other side trying to kill you every day and every night, just existing in that environment. I mean, Imagine the last time you went camping and you're complaining to your wife because you got chewed up by 15 mosquitoes that night around the campfire. Well, imagine being out in the jungle where you couldn't have the smoke of the campfire to help alleviate some of these mosquitoes and just sitting there all night being eaten alive by these insects. But you can't scream. You can't freak out because you're going to give your position away and get everybody killed. So just sitting in a foxhole full of water, especially if you're in New Britain, and just existing in an environment that's literally eating you alive. The rash, the sand, and everything. I mean, how my one of the things I'm often saying the beach would be great if it wasn't for the sand because there's nothing worse than getting, you know, here in Florida we have what we like to call uh, baby powder sand, so it's nice and smooth. But California and other places, they got the, the brown stuff that's more like sandpaper. Just having that all over you all the time, just being in that existence would just drive you insane. And then put on top of it, there's somebody out there trying to kill you. I mean, what do you do with that? <sighs> Yeah. Well, and, and that's what you know drives my point home. I mean, that the, the whole point of this this podcast and what we do in, in reenacting and, and how we help keep these stories alive is is the least we can do for the for what those guys went through. Bear you know? with me. I'm going to try to and, read aloud from a book called the Guadalcanal Diaries. If you guys haven't read this, you really should. Nearby, late. Well, hold on, my page just fell. Ah, nearby laid a wounded man who had been crying in the night, a big muscular fellow. He laid on his right side while the doctor bandaged his shredded remains of one leg and a corpsman worked on his twisted gaping mouth and of a wound which had barred the other leg to the bone. His face and shoulders lay in the center of a sheet of, his, of the gore. Face wounds rained blood to the ground. A deep wound... Uh, a deep excavation through layers of tissues had been made in one shoulder to the other shoulder was ripped by shrapnel. I could see how the man made these terrible noises. He was crying, sobbing into a pool of blood. The blood distorted the sound of his wailing and the water would have done it in a bubble as the water would have done into a bubbling sound. The sound still came in cycles rising to peaks of loudness one of the wounded men handed one of the wounded man's hands moved in mechanical circles on the ground, keeping time with the cries. And so to be in that environment, having people that you went to boot camp with, people that you've known for a year or more, having that happen to them, being in that environment and still trying to accomplish your mission and stay alive. 
it's just, I just, that in itself is why we do this. We don't do podcasts. We don't do World War II reenacting, at least the people I know, to glorify war, to romanticize it and talk about how great it is. We do it to remind people how horribly necessary it was and how brave and strong these men were to live through that. The most horrifying things a human being can witness is to see what humans are capable of doing to one another, especially when mechanisms are involved. And that in itself is just so important to not forget. We always say we got to remember the greatest generation and what they went through. We really need to put into perspective what they went through. And it was hell on earth. There's no other way to say it. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, man. Um, yeah, this 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 first campaign. I mean, it, you know, it's almost a continuation of the battlefields in Europe, 1917, 1918. Um, just attrition, just men clashing against men, and machine guns tearing through bodies. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, before they became AARs, what we call in today's military, the after action report, but, you know, SLE Marshall, um, kind of the, the, the father of the AAR, had a lot of material uh, from essentially after action reports, uh, before they were called that, from Guadalcanal. And there were so much, that campaign had to happen for us to be successful. You know, any island, of course, there's lessons to be learned. In any battle in the Pacific, we learn something from it. You know, of course, we Tarawa comes to mind for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, you know, for that really the first, the Marines hitting a hot beach and all of those lessons learned and how we implemented them in Guam, Tinian, Saipan, Iwo, Oki, you know, and so on and so forth. But, this is where we were introduced. This was not the same enemy that was in, you know, Val dive bombers and Cape torpedo bombers over Pearl Harbor. This was, this, these were not the same caliber soldier. And, and I don't mean that in a way that they were not equal, but we had no idea what this enemy was really about, what made him tick until we hit Guadalcanal. Yep. And that's, you know, that was really baptism by fire uh, for a lot of these guys. And like you said, ill-equipped, ill-prepared, ill-trained, yet still the victors. That's America, folks. That is America. And you said something very important, and that was learning through experience. All the landings that the Marine Corps made... You know, not all of them went off more often than not. Nothing ever goes to plan. I mean, was it Patton who said, you know, uh, even the best of plans go out the window as soon as the boots hit the ground? But all that information that was maintained and learned, don't fool yourselves. The military put that into use on July of 1944 when we landed in Normandy. Basically, the Marines were kind of the beta testers, if you would, of the Higgins boat and the art of 
um, coastline assaults. It hadn't been done on that scale prior to Guadalcanal and to all, you know, Tarawa, Pelu, all those landings. And so by the time that, mm-hmm. you know, the big quote unquote D-Day came around where, you know, we all charged the beaches of France, the Navy had learned a lot on, you know, what beach landings by that point. And so, you know, there was a lot to learn through, you know, trial and error, if you will. Because these Higgin boats, they were yeah. all, even alligators, this was all new technology to them. They weren't used prior to that. I mean, alligators, and I, I know Higgins boats, and maybe even alligators, Higgins boats for sure, they were designed to do recovery during hurricanes in Louisiana and Florida before the war. That's what they were originally designed for. And then when the war came along right. and the Navy was looking, and, and the Marines were looking for a way to land humans on beaches, uh, was it John Higgins? Was that his first name? Over in Louisiana? Uh, I believe so. Or is yeah, Alabama? Uh, yeah, New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah. Andrew Andrew Higgins. Yeah, Andrew Higgins, yep. And they went to yeah. him, and you know, yeah. and he showed them this, and he had a, a few other things that he tested out that didn't really work that well. But yeah, I mean, this was all new technology to them. And um, it was it was new, but it was simple. And you, you saw that a lot back in the day, especially when you look at uniforms and gear. You can definitely tell that the military had a a motto, if you will, simple and effective. Don't make equipment more difficult than need to be. Don't make the weaponry more, you know, make it simple, effective, and make it work long term. And if you go look at the stuff, it's, you know, when it comes to uniforms and gears, with the exception of the Army's um Original M nineteen twenty and Haversack, that thing's a nightmare. But, but uh, it, <laughs> I mean, no one knows how to even put that thing together. We're putting the meat can in the bedroll, but that thing's a nightmare. But all the rest of it, with the <laughs> with the exception of that thing, is pretty simple and effective. And um, and that's what those Higgin boats were too. I mean, it was a boat with a ramp on the front, but it served its purpose. And once again, trial and error. The first boats, hey, let's put the ramp on the front. After a few landings, hey, can we put the ramp on the back so we can have some protection and not get laid out as soon as, you know, we try to step foot on the beach? And so there was lessons to be made, and and that's what they did. Yeah, I, you know, when speaking about the big invasion, D-Day, uh, one of the biggest, one, you know, the lessons that sticks out to me, like you said, that we learned from the Pacific, uh, there's very few, if any, LCVPs, or what we call the Higgins boats. Uh, at the beaches in Normandy, who had the thirty caliber guns mounted in those gun tubs? Yep. Uh, where they did in the Pacific. Uh, very simple lesson. A lot of guys getting hit by those thirties. You know, so when we knew there's going to be more guys, you know, more boots on the ground in the sand than anywhere else, uh, it just wasn't worth taking the risk. So they didn't even mount the thirties in those gun tubs. Now, if you're listening to this and you know the answer, if, if I'm wrong on this, please email us at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff. You would know. I don't recall the Marines having invasion belts. Did they? When you think invasion belts, you think D-Day. I've, I've never seen anybody talk about invasion belts on Marines. Was that a lesson learned that a lot of Marines drowned from the heavy gear that, hey, we need to come up with a life preserver system for them? Do you yeah, work? you're talking about the M1926 life preserver belt? Yeah, the one just wraps around the, the invasion belts with the CO2 cartridges on yeah. them. Did they have them during the... Yeah. The Marines had them? 
Oh, of course the Marines had them. Okay, because I just I, I oh, rarely absolutely. recall see photos with them wearing them. I always see them on the D Day. So I learned something there because I've often wondered, like, well, how come you never hear about them or see them having the invasion belts on then? But that's a good thing to know. Oh, you see, no, yeah, you see them all the time. Um, they definitely, yeah, they, they were worn around their body at all times on the ship. But because they were not the best for keeping you afloat, um, they would keep you afloat, but worn around your waist like a belt, you would end up just typically going possum. Yeah, you'd go upside and down. And your feet would be above the water. Right. So a lot of times they were just told that you wore it on your body to have it with you, essentially. So you didn't have to carry it, but it was connected to you. And then if you had to go overboard, you would actually unclip it from your body and inflate it and just use it like almost like a swimming pool noodle. Oh, I got you. Um, but yeah, I mean... Prime example for a movie to show those M nineteen twenty six is Sands of Okay. You, you see them all over Starway and Ewo, but yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. I'll have to go look at some more invasion photos because that's maybe it just blends in with the rest of the stuff, but I just I don't ever recall, you know, them being associated with the Marines as much as they were, you know, when it comes to army stuff. So lesson learned for me there. Sure. Yeah, if uh, I don't know what your what your personal library looks like at home, but if you have anything from uh, Eric Hamill, his coffee table books, guys, they are second in the U.S. Marines in World War II, Terror in the Marshals, he's got War in the Western Pacific, and he's he's also authored a lot of um, you know research type books. You know, I, I know he did Starvation Island about Guadalcanal, but I have a lot of Eric Hamill's kind of large hardback, just huge black and white you know photographs of the marines in world war ii he, he's really uh, his books are really great uh, photographic references for the marines in world war ii you know it's funny i'm sitting here looking the cover of this the magazine i bought tonight today from the history channel and they're showing marines you know invading on a beach and i'm looking and not to just put a you know try to defend my honor but not a single one of these guys have an invasion belt on <laughs> not a one of them and so it just goes to you know maybe that's why i never saw them because i you know whenever i see these these photos of them landing and uh even the uh, sadly the guys on the beaches who didn't make it you, you just don't see the invasion belts on them that much i don't know maybe I, i've just overlooked them well uh maybe that's something that we need to include the listeners on let's find photos with them without them um see what we can come up with yeah definitely would be interesting Speaking yeah. of which, just to get a little off topic, I know you're jealous that I got myself a uh, original May West vest, huh? Stop it. <laughs> June 2nd, 1945. <laughs> it's a late war. You want me to twist that knife a little deeper? Yeah, keep, keep going. Keep going. I can't wait to post some really ridiculous pictures and I pay, put I, that on on our Facebook page. <laughs> I, I paid 80 bucks for it. <laughs> what? <laughs> We were doing. I, there you go. Bro. I got invited out. We really didn't talk about it. just to get out of Guadalcanal a little bit. Um, obviously, the reenacting season's been all but dead down here. Um, I did get invited to go to um, Zephyr Hills to participate in a um, filming, which I think I talk about this a little bit. Um, I already have a podcast for in the can for the next one after this. It's uh, episode two, follow up with the Jake Larson interview, and so the opener I talk about that. So. Uh, we're giving you a little preview into the next episode, but I got asked to come up to Zephyr Hills to participate in a filming 
on the history, a brief history for uh, the Airborne. Turns out this documentary per se was more of a training video that's going to be included in the official um, history of the Air Force when the what used to be called the Civil Air Patrol, but now I think they call them Air Force Cadets when they come to um, join up with the Air Force Cadets and they they watch this history. But anyhow, we're up at Zephyr Hills. They had a C-47. Um, I was asked to come up because I had an 82nd Airborne. I just cut the patch off. And even though I had the 82nd trousers with their uh, rigger leggings, the green ones instead of brown, who cares? I put a 101st patch on. But anyhow, so we had Mae West, and my, my buddy allowed me to borrow one of his. And when we were all said and done, I was talking, I was like, hey, where can I get one of these? I said, I was looking at one on eBay yesterday. Things sold for like 270 bucks. Who makes a reproduction one? And he's like, well, come with me. And he had his, and then he had another one. He's like, here, you can buy this one. I said, well, what do you want for it? He's like, I have no idea what it's worth. And so he asked another one of the guys. He's like, that's a late war. Those things are going for, I don't know, 90 to $100. And so he's like, give me 80 bucks for it. Pulled out my phone, said, what's your PayPal address? Sent it to him, and Bob's your uncle. So um, I was thrilled to get that. <laughs> and so I just love getting as much original stuff as I can to keep in my personal library. And that one was something I've been trying to get for a while. But, you know, as we all do, we have budgets and ceilings on what we're willing to pay for something. And $270 on eBay was not the number I was willing to pay. So, yeah, I got that one for a steal. But yeah, oh, absolutely. You found something very cool, and we'll get back on subject here momentarily. You uh, what you find? You found those at an antique store? Yeah. So you know, for some of the listeners who who know me, and I know some of the some of my guys who volunteer with me are listening. Uh, you know, I'm a big antiquer guy, and um, I uh, I actually have a booth here at one of the antique shops here in Burnett, and was just dropping some stuff off, and there's kind of a strip mall and there's a, a smaller antique shop next to this big one that I'm a vendor in. And these have been leaning up against a brick wall for a month or so now and no prices hanging off. on it. man, I, when I, when I remember, you know, if I think of it, I'm going to go in there and see what the deal is. And so I go in there and, and like, see, it was somebody else's, of course, it, it you know, like any other antique shop, it's all these little booths and all the different vendors and blah, blah, blah. And then you got the lady behind the counter who doesn't really know everything in there. Yeah, of know. course. Her so, job is just to collect the yeah, money. So she goes, oh, you, you know, you know, those are probably from the Civil War. And I said, oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, whatever, I kind of went with it. And I said, well, how much are you wanting for them? She goes, well, you know, they're not mine. Let me check the notes of the, from the lady who owns them. And she told me, and I said, well, I'll think about it. And she goes, well, Your phone broke up on us. What'd let, you me, say? let me tell you something. What's that? Your phone broke up. You said she said, and it was just pure gargle. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, no, she, she, she put out a price, and I said, well, I'll think about it. And then that's kind of when I proceeded to kind of tell her what they were. Uh, and my interest in the Second World War and thing, and so, so she goes, well, she she would probably take this for him. So I said, and ring them up. So uh, I don't know if I want to divulge that. No, but radio, we haven't. But we I haven't. Him. We haven't told people what they were though. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. They're like, what the so hell did he buy? <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, because I put it on our Facebook page. So yep. I'm just I got that in my head. Yeah. So 
I came across three of the barbed wire, the World War One, World War Two era, you know, the picket screws, whatever you want to call them, uh, that, you know, they're a corkscrew on one end and they've got four loops. They're just one solid piece of steel that was formed that they really showed up on the, in the, you know, the trenches of World War One to just quick and easy, you screw it in the ground, you ran barbed wire through it and just as a wire emplacement for the enemy. Uh, and they end up on a lot of Japanese in a lot of pictures, um, you know, Japanese held islands in World War II. And it's just something I really wanted to have in my collection. So uh, long story short, I bought all three for about half of what I've seen one go for on eBay. You know, I, so kind of a deal. I always love when I find people who are selling stuff that they don't know exactly what it is and they definitely mark it down lower than what it what it should go for but i don't feel guilty for you know i don't feel like i'm ripping them off it's like hey you should research yourself on what you're buying one time i was at a flea market and i bought an original um army haversack for cheaper than what the reproductions go for and i even told the guy i'm like you're asking way too little for this he's like well i'm just trying to move it so i ended up buying it but it was the one i already owned was in better condition Actually, no, it was a Marine Corps haversack. I, yeah, it was a Marine Corps haversack, late war. And um, I ended up buying it. The one I had in my collection was nicer. So I just turned around and sold it on eBay and just made like a quick 15 bucks off of it and still sold it cheaper than what a reproduction goes for. And so I, I enjoy buying stuff like that. I was at the antique store the other day, got a pair of original Army leggings, size 3R for 24 bucks. I mean, that's half the price of reproduction. Yeah. No, right. I'm, I'm going through our photo album on the What's the Scuttlebutt Facebook page because one of our listeners in the past, um, I can't remember the name because it, it was like, I don't know, 20 episodes ago, he went down to um, Tarawa and he was he still finds those. You can still find those barbed wire pigtails in, laying around the woods and he has a photo with some original ones that he had found laying in the jungles down there. So they're still all over the place. Absolutely. So... It's August. There's a lot of anniversaries going on. We we kind of dove into Guadalcanal a little bit. Obviously, there's a lot of other campaigns. Um, if you're a longtime serial listener of this podcast, um, we actually spent a lot of time on past episodes. We've done episodes on Tarawa. We've done episodes on Peleliu, um, and Pearl Harbor and all that stuff. And so, if you we've sparked your interest, uh, first and foremost go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, go to the archives, and you can scroll through and find past episodes where we go into more depth about uh, the PTO. But um, definitely find some books. And, you know, a lot of people roll their eyes, and I don't I don't get it. We are kind of talking about it at the beginning with Midway. If the movie sparks interest in people and makes them go out and research, to me it's a win. You can complain about uniform and act, not saying Midway had them, but just World War II movies in general. A lot of the a lot of the diehard historians, quote unquote, complain about the little this and that and the other thing, and they really nitpick things apart. And then in the community, a lot of the reenactors they refer to Band of Brothers as bandwagon of brothers. And I kind of get it when it came out in the re, in World War II reenacting field. Everybody and their grandmother started doing you know, 101st Airborne Impressions. I get that point. But what I remind people is we're all supposed to be here to preserve history and to get people who were not interested in the topic prior to meeting us 
interested in the topic. And if there's one thing you can say Band of Brothers did was get a whole generation of people interested in the topic. And so to me, and it was a, it was a damn great movie. So don't belittle that series just because it made a lot of people want to go out and do 101st Airborne impressions. It was a great show. It introduced a lot of people to a lot of a lot of men who served over there. And it got a lot, a lot, a lot of people interested in World War II and who all went on to research and learn about other campaigns and other divisions and other groups. And back to the topic at hand, if you haven't seen it and you want to get interested in the Pacific, a good jumping off point that will lead you into researching other characters, which will lead you to reading books like um, Strong Men Armed America versus the Japanese, written by Robert Lecky, along with his Helmet for My Pillow, along with You'll Be Sorry by Sid Phillips, along with With the Old Breed by E.B. Sledge. Go out and watch the series of Pacific. It's a great place to start. You'll learn some characters. You'll learn some logistics. And you can base your research off that. And it'll send you down wonderful, wonderful routes of history and books and really get you into um, all things Pacific Theater of Operations. Yeah, I agree. And I would love for our listeners to uh, to be a little more interactive with us, talk about some of the books, tell us what you know what they've read, what they've come across, um, you know, movies or anything, because uh, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, when you're talking about uh, what movies, you know, what they're what they're meant to do and what they end up doing, uh, you know, with their inaccuracies or whatever. You know, I think about Battle of the Bulge, okay, the old movie from what was it from the '60s, early '70s, whatever it was. What were they, M47s that they were passing off as Tiger tanks or whatever it was? Yeah. Who cares? Who cares? Because my son saw that movie years ago. I mean, he's 14 now, so I don't know, he's 10 when he sees Battle of Bulge. So my 10-year-old son knew about the massacre at Malmody. Who cares what they used to be German tanks? You know, that's not what it's about. Now there's a 10-year-old boy who knows about the massacre at Malmody. I wanted to learn more about it. So, folks, that's what it's about. Um, I get it. I get the stitch counters because if you don't do it right, don't do it at all. And, and I was a big proponent of that. But at the same time, you know, history is history will never change, but it's different for everybody. And to so, that, and to- uh, remember that. Remember that when when you're when you're researching history, because I can tell you firsthand, guys, when boots hit the ground, the book goes out the window. So weird things happen in combat. Things you didn't think would happen. Oh, every book I ever found a manual, they weren't really issued that. Well, guess what? This guy has one. Just because there's not a picture of it doesn't mean it didn't happen. So, you know, that's definitely something we need to, to keep in mind in the reenacting world as well. Um, well, everybody it, was out there to, to, to survive. Well, and I think you're more than qualified to comment on this because you served and you did see combat. I assume that most of the uniform regulations and stuff, as far as, you know, button up, everything's creased right in this net. Most of that's boot camp stuff just to get you to the point where you follow orders correctly. I'm assuming a lot of that stuff goes out the window once you're deployed and you're living day to day in a combat zone. I mean, sure, you're still wearing your uniform, but you're not <laughs> as put tight and put together and concerned about everything that, like you were in boot camp and worried about a drill instructor getting in your face. Am I correct on that? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, you know, every unit's different. 
um, and you still you still want to maintain as much discipline as possible. Um, I mean, I can tell you firsthand. I remember taking my DCU top off one day after a mission, and my brown T-shirt underneath didn't have any sleeves on it. I ripped the sleeves off to use for toilet paper, and my first sergeant saw it, and he said, "You better put on a decent brown T-shirt." You know, Roger first sergeant. <laughs> uh, but you know, is it is that argument going to go anywhere? No. You know, he's doing his job, and he knew that I was doing mine. So. Um, it was a different time back then. Uh, a lot of the military deployment, because here's the deal, man. You, you guys know this. These guys were rushed yep. through any kind of initiation, rushed through training. Here's your rifle. Go kill the bad guy. Go save America. Get on a boat. Go. You know? Um, oh, so and by the way. The uniform stuff. I mean. <laughs> and, and by the way, um, we just came out of a depression. Um, you're lucky if the color of your trousers was the same exact color of your shirt because they were both manufactured by two different companies using two different materials. Uh, you're lucky if the flaps on your M1 uh, ammo cartridge belts all matched because everything was at a shortage. And so it was just put gear together, get it out there, let's get these guys closed. I'm not concerned that his P41 shirt is a shade and a half lighter than his trousers. Right. Man, I mean, especially when you get into the Army Air Corps, you're going to see officers, captain's bars on the collars on an enlisted men's shirt, you know, uh, personal belts, personal brown shoes. It was a war going on. Yeah. You know, everything, everything was at stake. And uh, that's World War II. You know, it, so, it all, it, and uh, talking about that, it always throws me for a loop when I see these photos of German prisoners that are in our possession after we, you know, get them off the battlefield and they're wearing like our HBT pants and shirts. It's just always so weird to me to see, but that's the clothing we had available. Here's a guy, we captured him out in the field, you know, his mm -hmm. clothes are torn apart. Okay. Get him into some clean clothes. And here he is a prisoner, but he's wearing American, you know, HBT trousers and pants. And you know, it just always kind of throws me for a loop, but you know, it's give, give them what we got to give them and just, put a marking or paint something on it to differentiate him from somebody else. But yeah, it was just give him what we got. Absolutely. That I know we're probably pressing on time and hopefully people have stuck around this long. But it reminds me of a, of a personal story where, uh, when I was over there, there was about five, um, I, I want to say they were part of the Iraqi national guard, but I don't remember it. I don't remember right now, but they were, they were Iraqi military. They were working with us. And one of them spoke pretty good English. And a couple of them had actually served in Saddam's Republican Guard during Desert Storm. Wow. In essence, they were our enemy 20 years prior, right? Yep. And the one spoke pretty good English. And he was talking a little bit about it. And I had to have my picture taken with him. And I, and I have it. Because they were wearing the military's chocolate chip uniform that we wore in dead or storm. And I, and I even, I, I told the guy, I said, how ironic is this that you are wearing leftover uniforms that we were wearing when we were enemies. Yep. <laughs> and now you're helping us wearing these old uniforms that we wore in dead or storm, you know? So I just thought, I, I just found it comical. I found it ironic and yeah, that's just kind of how it is. So, 
I just like to say congratulations to every reenactor out there who has heard about something being enacted on his uniform. We all know how expensive this hobby is. Oh, ain't that the truth? Um, we all know. Yeah, I'd like to think that every reenactor out there is doing it for the same reason. I know they're probably not uh, okay, but I like to give the benefit of the doubt to a lot of people. I've lived long enough to appreciate goodness in people and try to see positive things in everybody. So congratulations to you that don't quite have the you know $350,000 that you need to be in an <laughs> accurate uniform with everything perfect <laughs> and the weapon system. You're helping keep their story alive. And I don't know if I've ever met a World War II veteran that would say, stop reenacting because I would not have worn those trousers. And here's a little hint that no one gave me. If you're just getting in this hobby, I said, here's a little hint I'm going to share with those who are listening who maybe they found out about this podcast. Uh, If you're not into the hobby, but you're trying to get into it and you've been getting a little bit of sticker shock from the uniforms, here's a little secret. Go out on Facebook. There are pages where reenactors are selling some of their old gear. I'm actually myself getting ready to sell some stuff, not because I'm getting out of the hobby, but because I lost 30 pounds and now I got size 38 trousers when I wear a size 34. And I look like when I put them on, I look like I just got liberated from a prison camp because my my uniforms are too saggy. But (laughs) that tip is if you find used stuff, buy used stuff. And here's why. You're going to go out and pay for the high-end brand new stuff. And then people are going to bust your ass because it's, quote, not dirty enough, and that's not what they would have worn on the front lines. And then you're going to be forced to go out there and tear up your new equipment. So by all means, if you see somebody on Facebook who's selling a pair of trousers that fit you, that they're the same size, but they're dirty as hell, they may have a hole in them and all that, but they're $30, buy those instead of the $50 brand new ones that you're going to have to go out of your way to try to make, quote, unquote, weathered. So do not – do not – concern yourself whether or not I should buy new or used. If you find used stuff that fits you, by all means, buy it because someone else has already done the hard work of devaluing it and weathering it and making it look more quote-unquote authentic. So by all means, if someone has used stuff, whether it's a friend, someone on Facebook, the price is right. Buy that over the brand, brand new stuff every time. Unless you're trying to put together a Class A uniform, then you want something new and clean. Right. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I had a World War II veteran come up to me and he told me, he said they had two sizes in uniforms back in his day. Yep. Too big and too damn big. (laughs) So if you've got a uniform that fits you, you're ahead of the game. (laughs) And, you know, that's one of the things before I got into this, everybody said, oh, the Navy, they have bell bottoms, bell bottoms. Well, the Marines did too. They weren't bell bottoms. They were called stovepipe. And the reason for it, at least I haven't read this in any documentation, just pure logic stance. The reason their legs were so wide, one, um, when they made their uniforms, they made all they made them all the same length so that they didn't have to make different pants of different length. So then they only focused on different waistbands, and then once you got them issued, you would have them hemmed to your proper length. But part of the reason why the legs are so wide, I may be completely wrong on this, but just using logic is so that you can take your pants off with your boots on. Make sense? If you're, uh, if, it makes sense to me. I don't know if you've ever tried, but you can actually put your P41s on with your 
you know, if you have correct quote unquote stovepipe pants, the very first pair I bought, here's a little embarrassing thing. The very first P41s I bought, I didn't, this is before I got in the hobby. I was just researching. It took me a year to put my first impression together. I got them off of eBay and the, the button quality was fine. The stitching was great. The color, but they came from China. They had the damn pant legs tapered like modern day jeans. Oh, and it looks so, but when he had <laughs> leggings on, it didn't really matter. But I ended up selling those and getting a new pair after a few years. But yeah, for some reason, the first pair I ever got, they had the pant. It's like, did you not do any research at all? Why would you taper the legs? But anyhow, we're getting into the weeds now. <laughs> um, real quick before you go, why you had um, two things. We haven't done this in a while. Um, not to hammer you over the health email stuff, but if you're a listener of this and you have, I'm assuming you have great knowledge in World War II. Jeff has great knowledge in World War II. I do too, but it's impossible for everybody to know everything about every campaign. So if there's a topic that we haven't ever talked about, or maybe we have and we haven't got all the details correct, and it's something you feel you know a lot about, and you feel that you can carry on a conversation for 30, 45 minutes in an entertaining way, and you want to contribute to the show, i.e. be on it, be part of an episode where me, you, Jeff... We all hang out and talk about a subject that you feel strongly about. Maybe it's a subject you've done many of living history presentations on it. So now it's all muscle memory. You can go through all that. If you want to help us educate the world and help contribute to an episode, email us at info at WTSP World War II. That's WWII.com. Not the whole, not, you know, the full word World War II. WTSP World War II.com. Send us an email, or better yet, go to our Facebook page. Send us a private message. Jeff has the ability to read those as well. And uh, tell us what you want to talk about, and we'll get you on the show. And, um, you know, we're a community here, and no better way to educate people and to share knowledge than to share knowledge. So do that. And while you're on the Internet, send out emails and maybe going on Twitter bad-mouthing us. That hasn't happened yet. Um Head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and please click on that big, beautiful orange Patreon link. If you're not familiar with Patreon, Patreon is a way for you to support people who provide free content. Um, we have one advertiser. I'm working on a new one um, that hasn't come to fruition yet, but I'm hoping to get another advertiser. But if you enjoy the content that we bring to you, um, you know, twice a month, sometimes fewer, sometimes more, Head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on that Patreon link, and sign up. It's basically, you. there's three tiers. I made them super cheap because, once again, when I do this stuff, if it's something I won't pay for myself, I definitely wouldn't ask you guys to do. The first tier is $1 a month. It will literally take $1 a month out of your bank account. Um, and then when you go to Patreon and log in, um, we upload exclusive videos from youtube um we do an exclusive podcast called the og5 podcast i actually want to get jeff onto that where we go into a little more depth and talk about different things that maybe um it's just kind of a, a thank you to you who subscribe um we whenever i make new stickers i give them to what we call the og5 for if you're not familiar with that term that was a term i came up with on my other podcast on the digital 410 network Back when I started the other podcast, we were joking around saying, how many listeners do we have? I think we have five. So when you hear OG5, it's a reference to the long-term guys, the, the people who supported us you know, for the longest time, the, the original five listeners. But it's kind of a moniker that it, the true fans of any of the podcasts on this network take on. And so we have the OG5 podcast where um, it's every episode's different. Sometimes we talk about stuff that we don't want the whole world to know, but we tr entrust in you with, like I said, free stickers. So the first plan's a dollar a month. 
Second plan is $3.50 a month. And the third plan, if you really like us, is $7.50 a month. All tiers have access to all the same exclusive stuff. All tiers have access to the free stickers and all that fun stuff. The only real difference between the $7.50 a month plan, other than the fact that you really like us, is after month two, I will send you a free T-shirt of your choosing. So you go to our web store. I tell you to pick it out. Send me which model it is, what color it is, what show, and I will send it directly to your house, and you can uh, enjoy and promote the show that way. So if you really enjoy us, you like our podcast, you like the stuff we do on YouTube. By the way, if you haven't been to our YouTube channel, um, there's some great World War II stuff. Like uh, when I went up to Zephyr Hills, I did a little video, and you kind of see us on the C-47 and around. Um, I have an episode with me and Jeff from three years ago when I was out in Texas. And so there's material on there for this podcast as well as the other things I do in my life. But please, if you really want to help support the show, um, you can head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Patreon link, sign up. And by the way, um, the Series 2 of the K-Ration t-shirts are out. We now have the dinner shirt and the supper shirt. Breakfast is coming soon. And um, I'm getting a lot of great feedback on that. I know when Jeff posted his photos, people were like, hey, where did he get that from? And we've sold a few of them that way. And so you can also support the show by buying T-shirts. Once again, that's also at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Jeff, do you have any final words? I just want to thank all of our listeners for sticking with us and uh, look forward to more episodes and more subject content and um, keeping the memory alive, guys. And if you're downloading this show from our website, keep in mind you can also get this podcast at anywhere fine podcasts are located, whether it's I, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, um, anywhere you can find podcasts. Um, if you can't or don't have no desire to um, sign up for Patreon, that's fine. We still love you. Um, but one of the best ways to support a show is to just share us with your friend. It doesn't cost anybody anything. And uh, just spreads the word. So if you have anybody in your life or on your Facebook page who may have an interest in World War II or reenacting, send them over our way. Share the love. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll get some more listeners that way. Thank you guys so much. And Jeff, I hope you have a great weekend. Uh, you guys don't have any more storms heading your way, do you? Uh, not that I know of. I wish we would because we really need the rain. Yeah, we're getting plenty of rain down here, but they're saying it's going to be a strong hurricane season. But you're you're pretty damn further inland. I know the Texas coast got hit with one a few weeks ago, but um, that really doesn't affect you too much as far yeah, as, I'm about as that. Far, <laughs> yeah, I'm about as far from the coast as you are from like New Orleans. So. <laughs> yeah, we got to get you out to Fort Morgan it's one year. We got to get you out to Fort I'm Morgan. Ready. Yep, we'll get you out there. But thank you guys so much. And um, as always, thank you for supporting the show. And uh, look forward to the next episode, which is episode two of the uh, interview with our World War II vet, Jake Larson. Thank you guys so much, and we'll talk to you soon. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>